0: Hello and welcome to what will be the last Bartender Atlas podcast. Uh, When we started this about a year ago, it was just supposed to be a year-long project. We've come to the end. I've talked to a lot of people. And on this episode, we're talking to Bartender Atlas co-creator Jessica Blaine-Smith. It ends up being more of a conversation just between the two of us, uh, a little bit of the explanation behind Bartender Atlas and the podcast, and who both of us are and where we come from.
1: Okay, you can go first. All right,
0: where did you grow (laughs) up?
1: I grew up in a small town in Ontario called Port Hope. It's about an hour east of Toronto, just off the 401, so we're a small town, but you know, close to the big city.
0: Mostly noted for where Wheels' dad plays a week long engagement on Degrassi. Yes. Yeah. That's the claim to fame.
1: <laughs> Among other things.
0: Yeah. What uh when you were in high school, who did you hang out with? What like social circle did you run with?
1: <laughs> I hung out with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but that was like the last year of high school.
1: Um, I was a band nerd. I played alto sax. I started playing that in middle school and then carried through in high school. So most of my friends came from being in band. I was that kid. Right on. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: How does that relate to what you went to university for?
1: Absolutely nothing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I did not study music. I didn't think I was good enough to do anything with that, nor did I think I could actually make a living doing that. Uh, I actually got into photography as well in high school, and that came really second nature to me. So when I was applying for universities and colleges, I made that my focus. I was always into writing and into photography. So I applied to some photojournalism courses and some straight up photography courses. Um, Yeah. And then I ended up going to Ryerson University in Toronto to study photography.
0: How long does that take?
1: Uh, It's a four-year, it's a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree.
0: Yeah. How did you put yourself through university? I worked. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, I don't come from one of those families that pays for your post-secondary. I I worked all through high school, saving money, um, and then I actually got a job at Ryerson at the print shop, which was called Copyright. So it's Copyright and the Used Book Room. It was run by the student government. And yeah, I did all the photocopying and selling of used books. I actually started working there even before classes started. I was at Nerd in first year in res that needed to make some money.
0: So you were there before everybody else was? you missed out on Frost week because you were making photocopies.
1: No, I still did Frost week stuff, but I was definitely working first, which was also kind of nice because you met people outside of your program. Oh
0: yeah. What was your first job out, out of university? So you worked at the print shop while you were in university, you graduated and then what did you do?
1: So when I was in university, I did a placement with a portrait editorial photographer called um, Deborah Friedman. So I did like a Internship, which counted as a credit with her. So I did start assisting her a bit. I started working for a couple of photographers, and then I mostly started working with an architectural photography company called A-Frame. So they photograph interiors and exteriors of really big, cool projects. And I basically managed them: I did all the bookkeeping, I helped with all the bookings for clients, I helped um, pitch our projects to publications and just did everything of running that business.
0: And so with all the bookkeeping and putting together pitches and managing all the photographers, was that stuff that was covered in your university program or is that stuff that you put together on your own?
1: That was stuff that I mostly put together on my own because the program I did was more based on fine arts. It was more about photography being an art form and working on projects based on different concepts and stuff like that. It wasn't necessarily a practical a photography course, which you would probably get more at a college level, where they teach you specific things. I mean, I did do like a business course and stuff like that at Ryerson, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really guiding us to do our own business. So when I started working for A-Frame, it was just learning as I went, you know, being taught by the owners of the company there. And it's just also, I guess, something that I found really natural to be able to do, you know, all the different aspects of running a business.
0: When you were working with A Frame, there was a crew of photographers there, right? There was four or five people shooting for. Uh, them?
1: there was about two. Yeah, yeah,
0: um, and then, would you say that? And I know this obviously because we're <laughs> married, but like, would you say Ben functioned in a kind of mentor relationship with you, or are you guys more just like buddies? And he, you know, takes a piss out of you more than anything else.
1: No, hundred um, percent. Ben, the main owner. Um, there was two owners initially, and he bought out the other photographer. So it became his company. And yeah, he was like a big brother to me. Um, He taught me a lot. He put a lot of trust in me. Um, And I learned a lot from him. Um, You know, something that I learned from him was, you know, just being vulnerable. And if you're not, if you don't know how to do something, that's okay. You just have to ask or you just have to figure out how to do it. Um, And he gave me a lot of room to sort of grow and figure things out on my own and just putting that trust in me. When I was, you know, you looking back now, you realize how young you were at that time. And it's pretty awesome that he basically put his business in my hands.
0: So this was all like early 2000s, yeah?
1: Yeah, I graduated from uh, Ryerson in 2003.
0: And since then, what have you been up to?
1: So I, the whole time I was working with A-Frame, I was running my own photography company, photographing mostly weddings at the time. Um, and initially a frame had an off, had a studio in the East end of Toronto and he was moving space uh, to a new space in the West end. And I saw the opportunity to take over the lease of that studio. I was super young. I think I was like 24. I took over the lease of an 1800 square foot studio that had four offices, a shooting space, a kitchen overhead was crazy for someone my age and. You know, my income bracket, but it just felt like a really great opportunity to have, you know, a space to take portraits in and just have an office and really feel like a real business person. So I did that. Everyone told me not to do that, including, you know, my old professors and other people I looked up to told me it was too risky to do it. And I just followed my gut and uh, took over that space. And I had that space for 13 years. Um, There was four offices. So I had subtenants that, you know, rented those offices, graphic designers, other photographers. I had a furniture maker at one point. Um, And then I had the shooting space, which I'd also rent out on top of just running my own photography business. And I absolutely loved it. I think that having that space allowed me to really take myself seriously as a photographer and really expand on my own work and my my business um it enabled me to s- slowly wean myself off of working for A-Frame so I stopped working for them within a couple of years because I was too busy with my own work which was really great but then after having the space for so long and realizing that just managing that many tenants it was taking away from what I really wanted to do and I was sort of getting stagnant in my own portrait work and I decided to get rid of that space which was I guess 4 years ago mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then around that time was when bartender Atlas birthed <laughs> yeah. um,
0: before moving into bartender Atlas stuff and me more, um, when you had your studio, you didn't just rent out spaces to people. You actually, like you became friends and built community relationships with you. Like you said, you know, not just other photographers, but other artists and the furniture maker and web designers and everything else. Um, is that something that you've done throughout your whole life where you find yourself building communities like that?
1: I think so. I mean, even in high school, I was always organizing like nerdy little get togethers, like tea parties. And, and, uh, I was organizing a lot of shows with bands, um, in the nineties in Port Hope, which was fun. Um, yeah, and even when I had my studio, because I've, I I knew it was such a privilege to have a big space like that, I would do monthly photographer get-togethers. You know, And I think at the peak there was like 75 photographers that showed up, and it was just sort of a meet and greet, everyone having a drink, some food, and hanging out. Um, but it was really nice to create a space where people wanted to get together and just, you know, share your common interests. So, yeah, I think I've always kind of brought people together in pretty much every aspect of things I've done. Mm -hmm. Um, So why don't we talk about you? Yeah. Where did you grow up?
0: (laughs) Coburg, 10 kilometers away from Port Hope where you grew up, Springfield to your Shelbyville.
1: And how did you like school? I hated school. (laughs) Why? I hated
0: it. Um, You know, I think given our age and when we were growing up and also my mom's I was, you know, my parents divorced real young. I lived with my mom primarily. I'd see my dad every couple weeks, but uh, we weren't in any sort of situation to have the uh, testing done that is now, I feel like it's done pretty uh, often and rampantly amongst kids as far as learning disabilities and ADHD and whatnot. And uh, by the time I was about 20 and I had friends going to school for ECE and all this stuff, uh, people would ask me, like, how did you deal with it when you were a kid? Because I am so obviously ADHD. Um, and, you know, hyperactive and not that I can't concentrate on things or can't remember things, but like, I need to do it the way that I need to do it. And school wasn't necessarily conducive to that. Um, which isn't to say I was in like fights a lot. I just, you know, didn't care to do homework. And if something wasn't interesting to me, then I wouldn't pay any attention to it.
1: But you still did well in school. Like your grades were not horrible and you did decide to do post-secondary. So what did you do with that?
0: You know, it was one of those things where I... Realized that my life wasn't going to get any better by totally fucking off in school. Um, There wasn't really an opportunity to make anything great without doing that. So, yeah, I went to school for radio broadcasting um, because I really liked records and had always had a radio on in the house when I was growing up. And it was an all oldie station. So I have this like pop music background underlying thing. But then when I was like 10, I started really branching out and listening to my own stuff and Maybe naively thought that I could change how radio was.
1: It's good to dream big. Yeah, <laughs> and you also have that those uh, low tones for that nice radio voice. <laughs> the low tones <laughs>
0: freaking out people at coffee shops all the time.
1: So when you graduated from college, what did you do?
0: Uh, I part of my program similar to what you did, where you had to intern with another photographer, uh, and you get a credit for that. I had to. Do a six-week-long unpaid internship at a giant radio station called 102.1 The Edge in Toronto. It it was really cool um, at the time. Uh, the radio station had a street front studio, so if you were just walking down Yonge Street, which at this point is kind of uh, all big box, almost kind of desolate, uh, especially right now, but it's a street front studio that was on Yonge Street, part of one of the biggest malls in Canada. And so, as you're wandering around, you can go in and like. See the radio personalities uh, doing their shows. When there was interviews, there'd be live shows. You could go and get autographs and like go get your picture taken with Moby or Gwen Stefani or Henry Rollins or whoever. Uh, and it was an alt rock radio station, and I had piercings and tattoos, and so they liked me, and they kept me on after my six week internship, where I ate nothing but power bars and drank nothing but Lipton Brisk Ice Tea because I had no money, and that's what we were giving away at the time.
1: I think that was also a big time in in media, in music, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think so much is accessible now. And back then, you know, obviously things were CDs. Um, there's no such things as just streaming every music you want. You'd have to listen to the radio. Yeah. Or you'd go down there. I mean, at that time... When I moved to Toronto ninety nine, that's when they had they had the storefront there and George Strombolopoulos had his show and I lived a block away when I went to Ryerson. So I would go there, you know, multiple times a week and just hang out at that storefront studio and like I got to meet so many bands. This is also where I got to meet a lot of friends, like my first friends in Toronto that were not part of my university, which was really mm-hmm. cool. It was a really cool time and I don't know that there's anything like that now.
0: No. Um- No, I don't think there is. I mean, we know George tries to do concerts in his house, which obviously he hasn't done at all this year. But uh, I think that's something cool. He's honestly like really genuine, meaningful, honest dude. Uh, He's a good guy to have in your life for sure. Uh, We still text with him sometimes. Um, But yeah, one thing that was cool about that radio station is like I got my internship there right as all the Napster shit was happening. Um, So that was, you know, like LimeWire didn't exist yet when I was doing my internship, because I think, yeah, it would have been the year 2000, something like that. And so it's funny to think that that was how you heard new music. You would wait forever if, you know, you had heard that Weezer had a new album coming out or Tool had a new album coming out. The only way you're going to hear any of that stuff is by listening to that station. And through that, um, I feel lucky now as a bartender, very rarely do I get freaked out when celebrities come in or hang out because I spent my very early 20s hanging out with the dudes from Stone Temple Pilots and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Ben Harper and whatever so like mm-hmm. you know uh it kind of gave me a head start as to having celebrities sit at my bar and pretend like I don't know who they are and they're a VIP just like any other guest.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny like you think about how much access we had to me, You know, me just being a regular viewer and you being actually on the air with them. But we had so much access to people at that time, which I don't think is something that's ever available
0: yeah. since then. Yeah. It's it's funny how celebrity has changed in the last 20 years even.
1: Yeah. You know, they're, the they're idea a, of it. Yeah. Before there were just people making things that you really appreciated. Um, But you did radio for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And then what?
0: Uh, I grew disillusioned with it. Um, I... Like I said, naively, thought that I was going to be the one that changed how radio worked. And even, you know, when I worked at the radio station, it was cool. I got hired as a promotions guy. So I was the guy handing out stickers and stuff out in front of concerts and would park my Jeep at the entrance of you know, festivals and stuff. And then I had a job in the music department where I was helping to choose. I mean, this is very much in air quotes, helping to choose the songs that got played, which was mostly me being 21 and arguing with 35 year old guys who had been in radio for 15 or 20 years already about what we should and shouldn't be doing. Like I knew anything. Um, but also they wanted me there because I had radio, a radio diploma, and I was also 21 and actually going out to bars and talking to people and finding out what was cool and what wasn't. So that was a great learning opportunity for me there. And then because I was so good at voicing my opinion in those meetings, I got offered an on-air position uh, doing the overnights. And at the same time, George Strombolopoulos, who we already talked about, sort of uh, mentioned like that you introduced me to. Uh, and he took a liking to me through you knowing him from going there all the time. Uh, He had me as the co-host to his punk rock show, which was sponsored by Epitaph Records, which was a big deal for me uh, because as a kid, you know, everything on Epitaph meant everything to me. Uh, And then so I hosted a show. I did the overnights, all this stuff and grew disillusioned. And, you know, there are some bands without naming names that it's really hard to sound excited about introducing or interviewing, especially at that time, because I was definitely a snob about music when I was 20 years old. And I grew tired of getting excited about it. And then uh, a friend of mine was playing in Avril Lavigne's band and he had grown disillusioned with what uh, he thought playing in front of 60,000 people would feel like every night. And he had started a record label and asked me to come and work with him on that and tour with his band and sort of use what I knew about media to help grow this independent record label, which I did for three solid years. And when I say three solid years, it was just like, Touring a lot and sleeping on couches and never having a real steady job that whole time and paying rent with whatever I could scrape together from selling T-shirts or old CDs or whatever. So I did label stuff for a while and again, touring and dealing with musicians all the time and had no money. And then a friend of mine was a barback at the Drake Hotel and had negotiated with the managers that after whatever it was, six months or a year of him barbacking there, he wanted to be a server and the deal was if he could find someone that could take his... Place as a barback, then he could be moved up uh, to serving. And so he asked me what I knew about barback, and I was like, "You stock fridges and you sweep floors, right?" Uh, and that was what I did. And so I ended up with that job at the Drake. And again, there ended up having every job that there was to have in that building: shipping, receiving, barbacking, bartending, uh, security, which was hilarious because I was 130 pounds standing at the door as if I was ever going to be able to do anything if a fight broke out. Um, but yeah, and I did everything I could at the Drake. And that was when I really started paying attention to bartending first and then cocktails after. And then since then, I've just been trying to balance those two things out.
1: I think for you with your bartending is the the real uh, turning point for your career was your chance to go to Vancouver during the Olympics. Yeah, for so- sure. Tell us about that.
0: So, on a previous episode of the Bartender Atlas podcast, uh, we heard from Christina Kuypers, who is now uh, in charge of Cineplex. Um, (laughs) But she was managing a hotel, bar, and restaurant in Vancouver. And the Olympics were coming up. This is 2010. And through her and I working together at the Drake and her seeing my passion to try and always improve myself and learn things, but also knowing that I had lived in Vancouver for a minute previously. Uh, and she wouldn't have to babysit me, she called me one day and essentially said, I need you to come and work with me for the month of February because the Olympics only last three weeks. We're going to get you in three days early, train you, work for three weeks, and then you can fly home. Um, And in those three weeks, I got to work with a guy named Simon Ogden, who anyone that's ever met him will know that he is uh, an encyclopedia of many things, uh, booze being one of those things on the list, and... In the three weeks I worked with him, it was funny working in an Olympic city, but in a hotel. No one wants to hang out at their hotel bar during the Olympics. So everyone would take off and do Olympic stuff, which left Simon and I alone on the bar, To uh, for him to teach me everything about agave, about amaro, about whiskey, about everything I didn't already know. I, any question I had, he was happy to answer and ask. He taught me a bunch of stuff about technique and ice dilution and everything, so that by the time I came back to Toronto, you know, in March of 2010... I felt like Neo in the Matrix where I had been plugged in and I came back and was like, hey, I know Kung Fu. And all of a sudden people were like, what, you put egg whites in drinks? And I was like, well, you got to dry shake it though. And everyone was like, dry shake? What the hell are you talking about? Um, so it really gave me a, a leg up in understanding everything about cocktails and booze and service was through working with Simon Ogden.
1: And then from there, you started working at a bunch of different bars. You worked at Bar Isabel. You weren't on the opening team, but you started working about a month after they opened, (laughs) uh, which quickly became the best restaurant in Canada. Um, You worked at Campinolo before that. You worked at Rock Lobster. Uh, (laughs) You you worked at... uh, And you're now at Chanticleer slash Phoenix.
0: Yeah. Slash Bitter Days, slash whatever happens next with that business. Uh, Jacob, who is the owner, he and I... He actually, when I was working at the Drake Hotel, I worked a night called Elvis Mondays, which was like an invite-only open mic night, so a bunch of independent bands would play down there. Again, always you know, music being my first love, despite never having played it properly. Um, but Jacob's bands would come and play at Elvis Monday often. So I was like the first regular bartender that he ever had, and this is when he was you know, 19, 20 years old, and uh, then years later, I was working at the Harvard Room when those guys... Decided to shut it down and I wasn't sure exactly what to do. And Jacob needed a bartender at the time. So I ended up working for a guy who I was the regular bartender for when he was 20 years old at his restaurant, like 10 years later.
1: Full circle. Full circle.
0: And that was four years ago. And so since then, uh, yeah, worked at Chanticleer and then there was a fire and we moved across the street to the Phoenix and then the pandemic happened. And now we're open as much as we possibly can be. So we've gotten to where I am. When Doing all the photography stuff and getting rid of your studio and all of this. When did working with bartenders and service industry stuff happen for you?
1: So I had gotten rid of the studio, I think, at this point. um, And I was stopping photographing weddings. I was getting a bit burnt out. I'd been doing them for 13 years. And as much as I love weddings, I think it comes to a point where I was just done with them and wanted to really focus on portraits. I also felt that I mean you were working a lot, I was working a lot, and there was we were kind of losing a connection. And I also felt that we were both so we both had skills in different realms and I thought that we could put our skills together and just work on our project. Um I remember coming home one day and just in a pissy mood and you and I had a big fight Mm -hmm. and I just said, we gotta do something, we gotta create something, like this isn't working. We need to like have a project that we can do together. And we kind of brainstormed. We kind of thought about, I guess, what lights us up and what we really believe in. And from that, we just got this idea of Bartender Atlas, which is like creating a community of bartenders worldwide, a way to bring people together and a a way to focus on the people behind the bars as opposed to all the bars. We felt like there's so many... There's so many websites and resources based on the bars, but we all know that the bartender, the actual person behind that bar is what really makes it a great or a terrible experience. And mm-hmm. we really wanted to create something that elevated those people.
0: Something that I thought was really funny when you and I had that animated discussion. <laughs> uh was that we had mentioned some people that we knew around Toronto specifically, and maybe some other people in Canada. Uh, You know, Megan and Tim at the Gaslight were the first people that we thought of. And initially, it was just going to be a bunch of features on specific people. And then, you know, through working through the idea, realizing that just writing an article about how cool Megan and Tim are, and how they own this bar and coffee shop together, and they have a kid. And You know, just telling their story specifically from our perspective, I think something cool that we came up with was that we have, you know, uh, the questionnaire on the site, and the bartenders, in their own words, can explain what they're into and what they're interested in and promote themselves in a way that they want to rather than us, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to tell them how cool they are they can tell you how cool they are.
1: hundred percent. I mean, it's, I think from day one with Bartender Atlas is we've really tried hard. It's not about you and I, I mean, I prefer to be behind the scenes and not be seen or spoken to, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, yeah, it's always been about the bartenders and just the, um, it's a privilege to create a space to sort of elevate them and give them a space to promote themselves. And yeah, that's that's what it's about. It's about Mm -hmm. those people. It's not about us. We're not these influencers. No offense to any influencers, but it's not about us. It's about everyone who's a part of Bartender Atlas.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think before starting Bartender Atlas, when, you know, because you and I obviously have known each other forever. But then we got together three years before Bartender Atlas started. And uh, in those three, four years, we would travel together and we go places like Australia or go to you know, um, Mexico City, all these different spots. And you had some experience in these places before and had ideas of what you wanted to show me and things we wanted to see. Whereas I was looking at, you know, world's best bar lists and was just like, well, we got to go to the if we're in Melbourne, we need to go here. If we're in Mexico City, we need to go here. And I think through doing that, we really got to experience what it's like to go to the best bar in the world without anybody knowing you. Hundred percent, And and it really gives you a clear vision of whether it's the best bar in the world or whether the publishers of magazines or owners of liquor brands or owners of other very popular bars are the ones telling you that it's the best. And it becomes very insular. And I think something that we wanted to do with Bartender Atlas was definitely uh, democratize it and spread around ideas and opinions. And obviously not just our own, the idea is entirely to have the opinions and ideas of Bartenders from everywhere talking about what their favorite part of the job is or what their favorite bar is or what their favorite spirit is.
1: 100%, because we've definitely been to some of those, quote, best bars in the world, and it definitely was not a great
0: experience. <laughs> we, we maybe got kicked <laughs> out of one for spilling a drink.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, it's just about the people that make that experience good or not, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've done a bunch of things with Bartender Atlas. What What is a couple things that stand out for you? And maybe they won't be what I think. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's funny because we did this with the intent of us traveling places uh, and introducing ourselves to people. But there are places that we've ended up going that I would have never thought to go. Uh, obviously, you know, I love all Amaro uh, and TV, and like uh, sort of having read about the drinking culture in uh, Italy Is something that I've read a lot about, but for whatever reason, never drew me to it the same way, say, places like Kentucky or Scotland do. Um, And so going on those two trips to Italy and visiting all those distilleries and then uh, not having a ton of free time, but just enough free time to go wander around and actually experience what cities are like where there never was prohibition or like even where religion is super dominant. It doesn't quite run the state the same way that it does in North America, where, you know, the church will decide if a county is dry or not. And so seeing going to places in the world where there was never prohibition and where drinking is just part of culture, where there isn't a word for people who don't drink, you know, uh, I think seeing and experiencing things like that, Italy stands out for sure. And it seems cheesy because it's the most recent, but Uh, as Bartender Atlas stuff goes, being invited to go visit Italy was probably around the top of the list. What about you?
1: I always go back to a story that kind of started at the beginning where before Bartender Atlas even existed and we were in Sydney, Mm -hmm. we went to yeah, and we had a really great experience there and talking to the bartender and and the people are working, and we were just blown away by the service there and the kindness of the people working. And it was a really great best bar experience. Um, and then we fast forward four years, and we are back in Australia. This oh, time yeah. we're in Melbourne, and we had planned a three day uh, three days of events. We call them our tours. So is the Melbourne tour. Um, we had a bunch of events planned, like a guest spot, um, a brunch, a cocktail comp. Uh, I think that's all of them, yeah, and what we do with these tours is we bring in another bartender from a different market. So in this case, we brought a bartender in from Perth, so we flew him to Melbourne to participate in everything that we were doing over those three days. and I think I mean there's so many cool things from doing that event. it was It was interesting to plan something that's on the other side of the world. Um, we had some really great contacts there to help us with that. The coolest thing was um, our guest that we brought from Perth. Uh, he really became friends with everyone. The people that came out to our events in Melbourne didn't necessarily know each other before those events, and they have now continued to be a, a tight group of people, mm-hmm. which felt really nice. But the coolest thing was the the uh, guest spot that we did at, what was the bar House called? of Corrections. House of Corrections. And that was something that Alex Ross... Helped us set up where Josh was doing a guest spot there. And he had uh, monkey shoulder cocktails on feature. And we met the manager there. And just talking to the manager, he had asked us about Bartender Alice. Yeah.
0: And David also stood out because he definitely did not have an Australian accent.
1: (laughs) So we were talking to him and it turned out that he was actually at Odevy in Sydney the night that we were there four years prior. And he remembered hearing us. Talking, yeah,
0: talking with the bartender about what it is we're supposed to do the next day. So like as we were solidifying the idea for Bartender Atlas, this guy witnessed it. And then however many years later,
1: we randomly ended up doing an event with him, yeah. which it's just the coolest. And yeah, it's stuff like that is, is really cool. Um You know, we did a Halifax tour in 2019 where we brought up Sarah Gage from Las Vegas. We brought her to little tiny Halifax. It was her first time in Canada. And again, it was so nice to see her embraced by the community, for her to meet people. Um, I think one of my proud moments was when we left her because we went home to sleep and left her out in the the haligonians yep. they uh they took her out and gave her a proper canadian experience you know eating poutine on the street corner or street curb you know at three in the morning and that kind of thing uh i love those things um another big thing i think that i feel really proud about is the creation of Toronto cocktail conference
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that's something that Me more than you, but once we started Bartender Atlas stuff, uh, I was going to Cocktail Weeks, Tails, of course, uh, Manhattan, Montreal, you know, there's all these other cities. Yeah, Cabo. There's all these other cities that were doing these Cocktail Weeks, and uh, there are are things like that that had happened in Toronto before, but maybe um, in a less industry-focused way, in a more promotion, money-making way, which, like, sounds worse than it is, but... We really thought that because of running Bartender Atlas and because of different connections that we had and because of all the traveling that we'd done, we could really do a good job of representing Toronto as it is where we live by bringing in people from everywhere and sort of trying to give people in Toronto an experience that we'd had in other places.
1: So, yeah, we we partnered with our friends, John Humphrey and Gord Hanna to create it. It was something that they had always wanted to do, but they felt like they just didn't have the resources Um, to do it on their own necessarily. So we partnered with them. And our first year was 2018. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a lot. uh, It was three days of mostly seminars, parties, activations. We sold tickets. People flew in from all over the country, all over the U.S. We had speakers from all over the world come, and it felt really, really nice. Mm -hmm. I think one of the coolest moments at that was at the closing party when – a Toronto bartender, Lauren Pelleggi, came up to us. And at the time, she was the the sweet age of 19, so just legally allowed to drink and be a bartender here in Toronto. And at the time, she was living in Northern Ontario. She'd come down only knowing one person, and she left that conference having met so many new people. And within a couple months, she'd moved to Toronto and was working at Pretty Ugly, which was an incredible cocktail bar. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace. But uh, again, just bringing people in, kind of you know, not changing their lives, but like kind of changing their lives. Yeah. And it just felt really nice. It, it was really great to then get so much positive feedback from doing that and executing it again in 2019 um, and making it even bigger and better. And of course, you know, we had plans for 2020 and of course they all changed. But Channel Cocktail Conference is something that is massive for us to organize. It's so much work. It's so much time. But the benefits, it just feels really nice to do it for everyone.
0: Yeah, sometimes I joke that uh, I, I actually have four full-time jobs. Um, obviously, 2020 is a little different, but uh, Toronto Cocktail Conference and Bartender Atlas and bartending is all very different things. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, Toronto Cocktail Conference is awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like- <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> Hopefully, in 2021, we'll be able to do something with it. I'm not sure... Capacities and, yeah. and in person events, but we we're not ready to kill it yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we talk about the podcast? Yes. You know, how did sure. it start?
0: Um, well, uh, I am a loudmouth and have many opinions on many things, and Jess has to hear all of them all the time. And uh, in an effort for me to share them with other people, whether she thinks they're good ideas or bad ideas or just want someone else to have to listen to them for a while, uh, she bought me a podcasting microphone a few years ago for a birthday present. And I didn't really do anything with it for a while. In my brain, uh, the last thing the world needs is another 35 to 50-year-old white guy talking about his opinions. And that was why it took forever for me to do a po- Initially, I was going to do a TV-based podcast <laughs> and like... Um I'm starting on another podcast now and I've kind of thrown all my reservations to the wind. But uh in starting the Bartender Atlas podcast, I didn't want to be another 35 to 55-year-old white guy talking about the drinks industry. And so Jess said, "Okay, so don't talk to white people." <laughs> uh which
1: white males <laughs> which is a
0: very like glib interpretation of what the conversation actually was, but realizing that if we're starting we have this platform with bartender atlas enough people pay attention if we're going to do a podcast it needs to be different and representative and again doing our best to kind of take a back seat in organizing but not necessarily making it about us the goal with the bartender atlas podcast was to get ideas and opinions from people that we were friends with or people that were doing other impressive things throughout the industry uh, without it always being the same bar managers or brand ambassadors or, you know, uh, contest winners or whatever, and kind of trying again to spread the love to people that initially when we did it, it was supposed to be just people working on other bartender centric events. And the first few that we did, Sam Jimenez, who does a lot of talks about, um, he never says cultural appropriation, but, uh, about representing tiki appropriately let's say that um and then josh davis from chicago who does brown and balance which is an amazing program he works a lot with lush life as well and then Steve casey our friend who does uh tiki by the sea um and the idea was to show that there are other people out there who are providing these resources that aren't necessarily brand ambassadors and don't have giant budgets necessarily to promote all this stuff and then the podcast evolves
1: Well, I think, too, it's it's really always just been about stories. And I think the way we connect with other people is by hearing their stories. And I think it's so fascinating to hear what people do in their lives to end up where they are or, you know, to decide where they're going from here. And, yeah, just hearing, you know, what did you go to school for and what did you end up being? You know, was it Johnny? who's a lawyer yeah. and is now one half of Cocktail Bandits. Yeah. You know It's just so interesting where you take your skills and your experiences and what you do with them. And I think that's how we can really connect, especially at a time right now. You know, it's, it's, We all know the pandemic. We're tired of this word. We've all been affected drastically by it. I don't think anyone's life is the same mm-hmm. as it was a year ago. Um, And it's all due to the pandemic. I know there's a lot of people that are shifting what they want to do in life and shifting maybe their values and where they spend their time and how they spend their time um, and what's really important to them now, which is such a blessing really for this, this pandemic to give us that time and space to really think about these things. But I think listening to the podcast and listening to other people's stories, it kind of gives you some inspiration, you know, that maybe you can make these shifts in your life and maybe it's not so scary and maybe anything is possible. You just have to kind of make a plan and just do it. So I think hearing the stories of other people on this podcast and any podcast that's, you know, a similar format really can benefit everyone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of what we tried to do when, you know, we were picking guests and people that I was going to talk to and what I was going to talk to them about yeah catching everyone from you know private school kids or former ikea employees or whatever Um, you really can find any kind of person this is part of the reason that bartending is so cool and doing bartender atlas is so cool is that you learn all these different things and different sets of skills that everybody has which circles back to how we started it in the first place which is we have these sets of skills that don't just necessarily directly to photography or directly to bartending, but we have all these other things going on and we really wanted to show up for everybody else that has these other sets of skills too. What else do we want to talk about?
1: I don't know if there's anything more. I mean, I could go on and on. We could start talking about birds or oracle cards, but I don't think that any of these things really relate. No. (laughs) So we just wanted to close out the year with just doing a little, a little ditty about us. Yeah. Yeah. As we mentioned at the beginning, we don't really put ourselves out there, especially me. Um, But, you know, sharing stories is maybe beneficial. Maybe you hearing about us a little bit sparks something in you.
0: Most podcasts do an introductory episode where they let you know what they're going to do and what it's going to be. We skip that part and we're doing it as a closer. Yeah. (laughs) We we buried ourselves.
1: (laughs) Um, so, yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast all year. Yeah. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate you sharing and, you know, just being alive.
0: Yeah. And putting putting time into uh, an idea that a couple people in Toronto had. And that's a wrap for the Bartender Atlas podcast. I want to thank Jess, obviously, for taking time to sit down, not just today, but for always working so diligently on all things Bartender Atlas. Um, this doesn't exist without her. Keep that in mind when you're sending us messages, uh, DMS, if you want us to promote something, it's never just me. I'm just the face of it. Uh, I want to thank Matt Wu for writing a song that ended up being used as the podcast theme song, even if it wasn't its original intent. Um, and thank you again for listening. If you have any questions, as always, hit me at bartenderatlas on uh, Instagram. You can email us, go to the website. Anytime when you're finally allowed to travel again, maybe you want to explore your own city, please bartenderatlas.com. Look and see what bartenders are there. Look and see what cocktails are making. Look and see what maybe you have a chance to go and experience when we can all experience things again. Thanks a lot. Be well.